You're listening to At Home and Abroad on Irish Radio Canada, and uh, a few number of years back, I think it was 2013, I had a chat with Jack Kiernan from Mullingar County, West Meath, when he published a book, Is It Me? It was the Joseph Heffernan story, The Last Man Hanged in Kilmainham Jail, and that it was about early 20th century British injustice in Ireland. And this had got to do with an interesting case of a young lady who had gone um, missing and had been killed in Mullingar and the incident surrounded. Well, Jack has written another book and it is just hitting the shelves and it is um, dealing with uh, a time in Ireland where there's going to be a lot of discussion and a lot more discussion in the next number of years and it's why did they lie, the civil war, the truth, where and when it began plus um, rigged 1922 election. Uh, Jack, first of all, welcome back, and it's great to have a chat with you again. Thank you very much, Austin. It's nice to be back to Canada again, by voice only, but nonetheless. Uh, there you go. The last book you had uh, was dealing with what would have been a civil situation where there was a murder case in Mullingar. But this time you're moving on to what is a much more political topic. Well, yes, indeed. During a very, I would say, hard time for people living in Ireland. It came about after the split uh, and, and uh, the, the Republican movement. One went one way and the other half went the other way. And, um, you know, I just done a lot of research into it and I unearthed a lot of stuff, disturbing stuff that we never learned about in school. We weren't taught about it because, as, as far as I can see, it was airbrushed out of the Irish history books. Right. Now, one of the things that this whole premise of the, the book is that was always out there, that the Civil War started in Dublin. And you're challenging that. You're actually stating that you, be- you believe it happened in Mullingar. Yes, indeed. The first coming together, the first gun battle between the two armies took place in the centre of Mullingar. And it's not recorded in the history books. I got it in reports from more newspapers. And when I say all newspapers, I'm talking about international papers as well. The New York Times, the Associated Press, National and Local Irish papers. And there's not a word of it in the history books. And all that week, there was a, you know, there was, it was a war in Mullingar. The New York Times described Mullingar as looking like a French village during the Great War after the Germans went through it. It was in a terrible state, and it's not in the history books of Ireland, and I researched it, and I found out a lot of things. Now, before we start talking about what did happen in Mullingar, just to put it in context as well, though, after the incident in Mullingar, did things quieten down for a while and then was it that there was an, uh, an eruption in Dublin, which, which I guess you could say was, was kind of classed as the official start? Yeah, you see, the thing that happened was the, the two sides, the pro and anti-treaty, decided to hold a conference at the end of March 1922. Arthur Griffiths, the president, decided to block the pro-treaty army from taking part in the conference. The anti-treaty, that was his pro-treaty. The anti-treaty guys then decided to go ahead anyway and they formed uh, another wing of the Republican movement, if you wish. Mullingar came out the next day and pledged their allegiance in the papers, pledged their allegiance to the anti-treaty side. Now, that's the end of March. Um, the pro-treaty moved a lot of soldiers 
from Beggar's Bush and other places into Mullingar at that time. And the British Army were still in the barracks in Mullingar as well. Now, on Tuesday, the 25th of April, the first gun battle, the first coming together of the two armies took place in the middle of Mullingar. That was Tuesday. There were at it, there was gun battles from the railway line to the county hall to the courthouse because the anti-treaty guys took over the county hall and the courthouse and the old tech and the pro-treaty were on the railway line. That was, that was you know, the Wednesday and the Thursday, Thursday morning, they decided the pro-treaty to ambush an anti-treaty truck that was up delivering bedding to the old RIC barracks. When the truck was coming back from the barracks at the corner of the junction of Mary Street, College Street, the ambush took place. The truck stopped. The lads got out of the back of it. And when everybody was out, the driver, McMunn was his name, a private with the anti-treaty army, he stuck the truck into reverse and reversed back towards the barracks. The poor treaty guys that were part and parcel of the ambush party opened up on him. And he was hit, but not seriously, but his face was covered with blood. He got out with the truck and on the blind side of the, 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 the fire and nearly ran towards the barracks. And as he was running, they fired at him again and they hit him again, but still not, he was lucky, still not seriously, but he fell on the ground. The sentry and another guy comes running out from the guards' barracks, and these are anti-treaty. They returned fire, and a guy called Patrick Collum was killed. Patrick was part and parcel of the ambush party, and uh, the name, the Colin Barracks in Mullingar was named in his honour. Now, the unarmed prisoners were marched down Mary Street, their hands in the air, and when they came to Dominic Street, they turned and right towards facing the post office here. There was another ambush party waiting for them there. And the strange thing about it is, they shot into the prisoners, and they didn't care about the, the, the escort for the prisoners because the escort for the prisoners were pro-treaty guys. But members of the ambush party were wearing what they called at the time tin hats. They were helmets. And there was a helmet issue that was issued to the British Army during the war, the 1480 war. So there were British soldiers. And there were some Free State soldiers in it. Now... The bullet holes were in the, the, the wall at the cable end of um, a pub, Johnny Cosworth. It was Vaughan's years ago. And we used to see them as kids. But somebody filled them in on the bottom. But the ones high up weren't filled in. And I had a good look at one of them, and there were six bullets, like a C, the letter C backwards. The grouping was fantastic. He was uh, a sharpshooter, if you wish. He was a sniper. And he was Irish, I'd say, because he didn't want to fire into unarmed prisoners. And he could, he could have hit anybody he wanted to. But he shot high. And um, there was a soldier killed, Joe Levy, anti-treaty. And there was a fellow wounded in that. And uh, that's not noted in the history books of Ireland. And um, that was two men killed within 15 minutes of one another. But Jack, what I want to do is try to put some of this also in context. Like, first of all, why do you think, or why was Mullingar such a strategic location, or why it did it um, appear in this fashion? And, and to tie in with that, I couldn't help but notice that on the rail line, some of the uh, stuff that was being moved, uh, you indicated that there was uh, what would be airline fuel. And I was puzzled by this insofar as 
why would there be aircraft fuel being transported across Ireland, passing through Mullingar or coming to Mullingar? And what, where, where was it coming from? Where was it going to? And what, what was the significance of that even? Well, first and foremost, I paid particular attention to Mullingar because Mullingar came straight out after the split and pledged allegiance to the anti-treaty faction. And that's why the pro-treaty wanted to wipe them out first. The story about the aviation fuel, and I got this from the reports, uh, it was uh, stopped in Mullingar, and I, to, to my reckoning, it was for the west of Ireland, for the Sligo area. But I don't know. I didn't find out what its destination was. I just said, it just said that there was aviation fuel was destroyed and uh, things like that. And um, the only thing I could find out about it is it was aviation fuel, and it was there, and um, it was for uh, military use, and uh, there had no aircraft in Mullingar barracks. So what I'm thinking is they had no runway or nothing, and uh, what I'm thinking is it was going to tour this slide area, and maybe they had a, um, a, a runway in some field or something over in Sligo. I don't know. But I do know there was aviation fuel destroyed. Right, because again, as like that, it, given the the time that we're looking at the 1920s, it struck me as strange. And then also, as I read it, I understand that it, literally that uh, train was hijacked, the fuel was poured down drains and set alight, and did a nice bit of damage there. They threw it down the banks of the, the, the railway banks, and they destroyed it. But um, the taxpayer in the, in the county was <laughs> levied against them. They had to pay for a lot of damage that was done. And uh, that's where it was. They were punishing the locals uh, in the hope that the locals would inform, I think, in my opinion, would inform on the, the, the IRA, the active IRA man that was in the town. Right. Now, going back to the incidents that occurred uh, in April and subsequent to the shootings and the ambush, uh, there were inquests. And the inquests were incomplete initially and then they had to be postponed for a period of time. And they ran, uh, it was difficult for the coroner to get cooperation. The thing was, the first inquest was on Patrick Collum. The anti-treaty guys weren't invited to give evidence. It was, as I said, no questions asked type of inquest. And that was that, and they came up with the decision that he was murdered. But you know something, he was part and parcel of an ambush party. The other inquest took place, and the people, the jury, weren't happy because the pro-treaty guys, all that they were invited to attend, didn't turn up. So they put it back for a few weeks, and next thing, they turned up in a sense, but they didn't really turn up because they started to ask stupid questions and, and uh, they walked out and uh, that was it. But they had to answer the questions in the investigation that took place in Dublin afterwards and they lied, they told different stories and, you know, it's unbelievable what they were saying, but it's in the book there anyway and um, I couldn't believe it myself. For example, the CEO of the Barrys, Captain Conlon, First of all, he said they had an APC, an armoured personnel carrier in Dominic Street that day, because they were trying to quell the fighting as soon as possible. Later on, in another report afterwards, he says, we had no APC in Dominic Street that day. We didn't have one there at all. And he, he was at the same as in one, so he didn't have a few after he denied it. And uh, there was other things. They said that... Um, prisoners were shot in Mary Street and were shot by their own men, which couldn't happen. And I explained in the book why it couldn't happen. Because you couldn't shoot down Mary Street from the positions they held 
in the guards bar, the RIC barracks. They couldn't. And also they couldn't row the barracks and come to the junction and, and, and shoot down Mary Street from the, the junction with, uh, with uh, College Street because there was still a military presence there when the lads were being marched down because they had a truck. They had weapons and they had an injured man uh, uh, column. He wasn't dead at this stage. So they would have left the military presence with these guys at the top of Mary Street. They wouldn't even want a, uh, a Collie Street because the anti-treaty guys could fire at them. So their own people were there. So the lads weren't fired at in Mary Street. They turned the corner onto Dominic Street. And the civilian witnesses, you know, that's the evidence they gave as well. But I know people might say, well, everybody had a aversion and support on one side or the other, and that's true. But the evidence is there that the, the, the ambush took place in Dominic Street. When you come to Chapter 10 particularly, uh, like one of the things that struck me was while you presented quite a lot of what would be factual records from a variety of sources, whether the facts or uh, the, the interpretation of some of the incidents by different sources may be reflected in different news media. Um, you interpret the, the whole story, and would it be fair to say that you perceive or you come from a, a particular perspective that would see that Collins was the one that uh, was the problem, effectively? Well, Michael Collins, he was a problem, and I thought he was a great fella. But, um, you know, he, he actually interfered with the Mullingar Brigade, and he changed the COs, or the OCs, as some people call them, in, in Mullingar, and he sent down his own men. He sent down Maguire and Conroy to run Mullingar. And, of course, the lads didn't like that. And, and um, that was, the, the lads fell out with him, over an incident where the GHQ sent a flyer around to all the brigades telling them to do their own fundraising. Now, the lads in Mullingar had on a bank and a couple of trains around the town and they decided, you know, Mullingar is too small for this to be caught. They moved the unit of five personnel up to Dublin and they hit, I think, three or four banks in the one week. And Collins was going mad. It was a drawn and wanted attention or heat on his little organisation up there. So the lads in Mullingar decided, look, we tell Collins, they're all guys. Told them who they were, get the five names, told them where they were staying. And next thing, the house was raided by the police and the army. Three of them were arrested. Two of them, the two Murrays, one of them was my ex, next door neighbour, Bill. They weren't in the house at the time. But three of them were caught. One was, um, or two of them were Redican brothers, and a, a guy called Reams. And one of the Redican brothers got 15 lashes in 15 years. And the other two got 12 lashes in 12 years. All thanks to Michael Collins. And I know that really he did that because he, GHQ, and he was the head book cat there, they informed on the Mayo Brigade as well. And the leader of the Mayo Brigade... After it's in the book anyway. It was all about you know acquiring ammunition or um, military hardware, guns, ammunition, and grenades, that type of thing. In England, and it, it all came from that. And and um, the lads on their fundraising over Mayo, but they give the money to Collins, and he organised that the lads go to England and collect the military hardware. Now that's fine. Don't over and done it. 
and they had to send it back through the, the route or the, the, the thing that uh, Collins had set up. They had their own way of getting it back to Ireland. And um, they sent it back, GHQ got it, and they divided it between Dublin and Cork. And the mayor has been a bit naive, done it again. They said, look, we'll do it again. And the same thing happened. Then they decided to go because then they got to know the people in England. They got to know these guys. And they done it themselves and they got it back, their own route back to Ireland. And um, when Richard Walsh, the CEO of, of the Mayor Brigade, when he came back to Dublin, he discovered that the DMP, Dublin Metropolitan, he had a big row with GHQ first. And then he discovered that the DMP was searching Dublin for him and they were searching, watching all the, the train stations and all that for the West to see what was between trying to get back to the West. Walsh got in touch with the crowd, his own crowd in Mayo, and they told him that the RIC uh, were looking everywhere for him over there. And this developed from a row with Collins and the GHQ over the importation of arms and ammunition. And um, like the DMP, they, they looked after Dublin City. The RIC looked after the rest of the country. And both of these police units were looking for Richard Walsh. And that's what happened with the Mullingar lads. Only they were unlucky three of them, they were caught. Actually, two of them were from Mullingar, but when they were working with the Mullingar and Balnicarrigan Brigades, they were from Boyle and County Roscommon, the Redigans. But, um, you know, they were, they were unfortunate that they were caught. And even when the pro treaty took over the running of the state, and a lot of the prisoners were let out, that Mullingar unit, they weren't let out of prison. And, um, you know, there's something terrible wrong there. I may be jumping back at this stage, but I noticed that there was a time when money was being raised, you talk about fundraising, and money was being raised, and the American fundraisers were anxious that whatever money they sent to Ireland would be going to what effectively was a unified organisation, which compelled what were the competing forces to kind of sit around and try and work something out. Yes, there was numerous little organisations or splinter groups, if you wish to call them that, but I didn't see splinter groups in England, but it probably looked like that. But they wanted everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. Now, that was before the troubles in Mullingar, and that was got to do with the formation of Sinn Féin and things like that. And, and uh, he, they did, and I think it was right. And the war really got together. They did get together until this uh, big conference in, in March, uh, 26th of March, 1922, when the pro-treaty guys didn't turn up. They were directed not to turn up by the president, Griffith, Arthur Griffith. And to my mind, he's the guy that started the civil war. There was no harm going down and listening to what the other side had to say at the conference. None whatsoever. And what could they do and say, these, these crowds don't even want to talk to us. So we'll set up our own little uh, Republican army and we'll do it ourselves. And that's what they've done. And that's why Mullingar was, was earmarked, because they came out the next day and put it in the press that we are um, backing the pro-treaty, or the anti-treaty side of the Republican movement. And, with, uh, you know, that was in the march. And, you know, <laughs> these first crowd was down in the barracks and coming down from Beggar's Bush and other places, all over the country. Mullingar. Mullingar got assistance only from two counties, from Offaly and from Tullamore. Nobody else supported him. I know the parts of Westmead, other than that, uh, but Westmead, you know, I wasn't pulling it in, but Westmead, Offaly and, and, and Tipperary. And uh, 
you know, something it was hot and heavy. All the bridges around the towns were blown up. The police station was actually blown up. And they went out the road, trucking miles to Castle Pollard the same evening, and they blew up the police station in Castle Pollard as well. And there's nothing in the history books of Ireland. Then there was another ambush outside the Gravel Arms. I'm sure you'll be familiar with the Gravel Arms in the middle of Mullingar. A car driving up from the Dublin direction, and it stopped at the checkpoint. And next thing, the poor treaty of British soldiers, I would be inclined to think, riddled into the The driver jumps out, and who are they? The CEO opened the barracks. I'm your CEO, he shouted. And he was at the running run to the back of the vehicle at that stage. I'm your CEO. The shooting stopped. When the smoke settled, they discovered their own Sergeant Major, McNamee, was shot dead in the back of the car. And one of the prisoners, there were three female prisoners dressed as nurses. One of them was shot dead as well. That's not in the history books of Ireland. And um, you know something? These guys shot at and when they fire into a car like that with their own CO driving, as God knows what else they, they did do around the country, not just around money. And my share, my, my taking on it is that Don Green ambushed uh, RUC guys down in Tipperary, and that was deemed to be the start of the War of Independence, and quite rightly so. The shooting of uh, an RIS, uh, Dublin Metropolitan Policeman outside Dublin Castle was deemed to be the start of the 1916 Rising. This gun battle between the two armies, the first gun battle between the two armies took place in Mullingar. We had deaths in the town, and there's nothing mentioned. Now, that stinks, that smells, you know, Jesus. I can't, I can't understand that. Then, of course, to the victor goes the spoils. And they're buried with the dead, anything that could come back to haunt them. It's as simple as that. There's no other way of excusing that. You just put it down, that's the excuse. You know, we can't run with this because what will the people of Ireland think? So, Jack, as we're approaching, uh, I know that there's a period between, um, what was 2016 up until, there's 10 years a period, um, that was taken in 1914, kind of, to 1924. So, as we approach... Uh, what will be 2021-2022. Do you feel that uh, what are other um, unwritten about, unreported, undocumented um, situations and history lessons uh, will start to appear from around the country? Of course. Of course. And, And another thing, when, when the lads came out, of had, they were all arrested and detained uh, during the Troubles. And when the, the, the treaty was signed, they were released. They were interred in various locations around Ireland, up the north, and in England, and Wales. And when the lads came home, in Mullingar, that's just the town, four of them died within a year and a half. Three of them was under 30. And they were healthy young men when they were picked up, you know. And uh, that would be either uh, they picked up something over there, TB maybe, I don't know, or maybe it was due to torture and uh, that type of thing, but I don't know. Now, one of them, you could say, well, the fourth fella was Larry Ganell. Larry was 71. These guys was mid to early 20s, the other three. 
healthy men fighting in the field. One of them, he even was fighting against the Black and Tans. He died in 1924, and he was only 22. So he was only 16 or something when he, in one battle with the Black and Tans. And that's not mentioned nowhere. And um, I, I don't know. But as I said a few minutes ago, to the victors go the spoils. You write the history books. Well, you're going to put a good slant on it for yourself. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the only thing I can think of. But as I say, you know, we're coming into a period where I, I imagine there will be a lot of uh, unearthing of what are records, be it newspapers and other documentation, which probably will paint a fuller picture. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I agree with you 100%. But the quicker we get it all out and get it up on the table, everybody know. Let everybody know what, you know, what went on at that time. Because what happened, the pro-treaty guys won the election, but that was rigged. But what happened was anti-treaty family members, well, when, the, when their husband or father or brother died, they wouldn't even dare put it on the headstone that he was with the anti-treaty guys. And, and it's not just Moneygar, it's all around the country. And, and uh, the thing was, in towns like... Mullingar, the Midland towns, Tullamore, all in, they were all the same. The biggest part of employment in these towns was state or semi-state. You know, the army, the police station, the CIA, well, CIA the railway, um, the hospitals, you name it. That's where most of it was. And your kids couldn't get a job because of your activities or their granddad's activities. You know, it's go to the road and look for half nothing for somebody. If you, if you wanted a job, but, but that, that, that's that's it. There's a there's a group, and it's written in into the back of the book. Uh, I forget the name. I met them on three occasions, and they're going around now putting up headstones for the Republicans that was killed, and they, you know they weren't honoured in any way. And in the book, I don't know whether you read the part that uh, I would be calling for the authorities to name the station Mullingar Railway Station. That's what it's called. I wanted. I'd like to see it called the Joe Levy Station or the Levy Station. He gave his life in the middle of Mongar. And uh, nobody said, nobody cares. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a sad time, but we need to talk about it and get it out into the open. And uh, the therapy, how many take into therapy to make Get it all out and no hidden, nothing hidden under the table. Get it all on top of the table and talk it out and... You know, it happened, and we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about the past, but we can certainly do something about the future. True. Uh, Jack, the, but the other reality, as I understand, of the Irish Civil War particularly, was you had many families who had people on opposite sides, and that it actually split families split, um, and extended families. So that, um, you know, there's been an awful lot of pain and an awful lot of sores, and that the rebuilding of just... Um, old family wounds has taken a long time also. Yeah, but have they, have, have they cleared it all up? Are they happy with the situation that it is? Because you've got, and you know this, in Ireland, you've got Fianna Fáil anti-treaty, you've got Fianna Gael uh, pro-treaty, and that's what thing still is talked about. And, uh, you know, they hate one another, really. And, and it comes to the fore uh, during some um, uh, interviews on, uh, through the media. And I heard they called everybody to know, so you're not going to throw something at somebody else. Because if you're a Fine Gael supporter, you are not responsible for what 
the people done, Fine Gael people, well, this was before the Fine Gael party was, was set up, but what your type of people done uh, all these years ago? You're not responsible for that. And, and, and you're a member of a, a legitimate political party trying to do it best for the country. And likewise, with, with Fianna Fáil. You know, and it's time that they got their act together and this civil war thing be done and dusted and get it out of the way so they can't come up again. Do you believe that by 2023 they, the decks might be cleared? I would love to think so. I would love to think so. But I don't know. Some people are dug in. And, uh, you know, their version of events is gospel and they don't care about anything else. All I'm saying is, and I've done this, I looked at all the statements in the military archives and bear in mind, I knew which side the man's statement, which, side he, which foot he kicked us. And I knew that. I went through all the newspaper reports, international, national and local. And um, I've come up with things. I've come up with, you know, stuff that... Even some of the, Mr. Pro-Treaty, a pro-Treaty guy, he confirmed up in his constituency that the, the boxes was interfered with during the elections. And he said, well, he didn't get a vote. And the anti-treaty fellow got number one. They made the number one into a four. And they gave this guy, um, what, uh, number one. Ernest Guy. Now, he said that. And he was the guy that gained on it. And that's why I believe him. Because he was with the, uh, pro treaty crowd and he did say that and he was assigned and it's up in the military archives and in the book I have the number his WS number witness statement number and I have the page that he said it on and ironically enough the page he said it on was the last page of his statement so his signature is under it and it's witnessed by an army officer at that time and what he said about the pro-treaty getting the number one when they didn't even get a vote, they didn't get any votes, but they were given a number one on the ticket. I have to believe that. But one thing about him, he didn't offer his pension back or the money he got while he was a TD, and he shouldn't have been one. But nonetheless, he said it, and it's not that one of the anti-treaty guys said it. It's the pro-treaty guy, and it's the pro-treaty guy that benefited from it. Now, soldiers don't do things like that, but, you know, the officers and their soldiers, so they don't do things like that unless it comes down through the chain of command. Unless it comes through GHQ. Soldiers aren't paid to think, is what they tell them. You're paid to act and carry out your uh, lawful orders. Now, that just didn't happen up in the north and Monaghan. That happened all over the country. In my opinion, I can't prove it, but that's where I hope it'll come out and people read the book and see what I'm saying. And hopefully others might have talked about it as well. But there was no referendum for the treaty, but it was, you were voting for a pro-treaty or an anti-treaty party. Now, the Labour Party were there as well, but they, they weren't getting any votes anyway at that time. But you were voting for a pro-anti-treaty party, and you knew that when you were voting. So when the votes was counted, the pro-treaty guys won according to the figures. So um, obviously the treaty was inactive, was set up, and that was it. We're going to wrap it up there, Jack. Anyone that wants to get their hands on this, published by the Manuscript Publisher, the book is called Why Did They Lie? The Civil War, The Truth. Where and when it began, plus uh, the 1922 uh, rigged election, and it's by Jack Kiernan. Jack, I know you have a website out there. I have. It's Jack Kiernan, 
Arthur. That's K-S-E-K-K-I-E-R-N-A-N, Arthur.com. Well, Jack, I want to thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you for taking the time.